If we turn to question 60 of the Tertia Pars, uh, the third part of the Summa Theologiae, we find that Aquinas introduces the idea of sacraments in the proper sense as something which is coterminous with the concept of sign. And to illustrate this, he uses a medicinal analogy. That is, he draws a comparison between the idea of medicine as a form of healing and the idea of the sacraments as providing a kind of spiritual nourishment. And he says the following, again in question 60 of the Tertia Pars. Um, Thus from which health is in an animal, not only is the animal said to be healthy through being the subject of health, but medicine also is said to be healthy through producing health, diet through preserving it, and other bodily functions through being a sign of health. The point here is that there are lots of different ways that you can use certain words, like healthy or like medicine. And Aquinas is saying that the word sacrament, in the proper sense, can be used possibly in all of these senses. It could be uh, something which points as a sign to a reality existing somewhere. It could also indicate the cause. That is, uh, something medicine is said to be healthy because it causes health in the subject. And in other senses, it could be healthy, the animal itself rather could be healthy, as the subject of health itself. This type of analogical language is a way of talking about the diverse way in which language, and indeed reality itself, can work. And Aquinas will tell us that in the most basic sense, although sacrament, the, the term sacrament, can be predicated in a variety of different ways. In the most fundamental way, at least in the way that he's speaking about it in the Tertia Pars, a sacrament is a kind of sign. Um, and in this way, sacraments are a kind of sign of a hidden reality, uh, a hidden reality within whatever subject they're pointing to. The idea of associating sacramental signs with medicine isn't something that Aquinas made up on his own. It's actually an example or a way of speaking about sacramentality which goes back at least as far as St. Augustine and in other ways probably deeper into the patristic tradition. But it, in St. Augustine's book on Christian teaching, De Doctrina Christiana, he uses a similar medicinal analogy for on the one hand the incarnation itself and then also the effects of the incarnation, that is the way material things or other types of things uh, already existing within creation come to be used, as it were, as instruments of the incarnation. All of these things are types of signs and they're all forms of incarnational medicine for St. Augustine. So speaking of Christ directly, this is in the first book of De Doctrina Christiana, Augustine's book on Christian teaching, he says the following, that a cure of any kind is a way towards health. Christ is the cure, and because he has received sinners to heal and strengthen them, he, he functions as a kind of divine physician who binds up a wound with a certain art. And here Augustine means that um, the way in which the, the doctor, uh, the one applying the medicine, binds up the wound exhibits uh, a certain skill that you might associate with a professional hand. That is, the, the dressing itself <laughs> exhibits a certain wisdom, even a certain beauty. Uh, the point here is that the, the work in question, the medicinal work, the task of healing that the doctor performs, is evidence of his wisdom uh, as a professional person who understands how to cure the situation in front of him and isn't the work of an amateur. 
So moving further with uh, the, the association between the incarnation and wisdom and a kind of medicinal sacramentality, Augustine will go further to say that the way in which Christ as wisdom, as the divine physician, applies, as it were, a kind of medicine to the wound of human sin, functions in a similar way to regular medicine. And here he says that lots of medicine works through either contraries or similarities. That is, something contrary to the, the wound or the disease is applied, like cold or heat is applied to a source of inflammation. By contrast, sometimes something similar is used, a bandage fitted uh, in a pattern that matches the wound rather than one that doesn't match it is used. And so medicine, at least in St. Augustine's understanding, works through contraries and similarities. And he'll say that the, the incarnation, the word functioning as a divine physician, uses in his own wisdom signs and instruments to affect sanctification and healing within the human person in a similar way. And so the, the incarnate wisdom functions as a contrary when Christ's humility heals the wound of our pride and the example of his virtue cures our vices. By contrast, the incarnation also functions in its wisdom as a kind of cure by means of similarity. And here we see that Christ, like us, is born of a woman, made a man like us, mortal like us, subject to suffering and death like us. And so the wisdom of the divine physician for St. Augustine in the mystery of the incarnation is exhibited through the way in which that same physician chooses to apply uh, the art of his own science, the art of his medicine, to cure original sin. So when we look beyond uh, this example of the incarnation in De Doctrina Christiana, we move to book two of the, of the same book for, by St. Augustine on Christian teaching. We find that the way in which this wisdom is applied by means of similarities and contraries is through the use of certain signs. And here Augustine develops a number of distinctions, uh, defines certain types of signs, which become influential for the later scholastic tradition of sacramental theology, the way in which the later um, theological tradition in the Latin West will come to understand the idea of a sacrament. Okay, so here in De Doctrina, again in Book 2, Augustine gives us a number of examples of signs. Some signs are natural, others are what he's going to call conventional signs. So we'll say more about both of those. So signs in general are, are things for Augustine that point to the existence of another reality, even if you can't see the other reality. An example he gives are tracks in the woods, for instance. When you see the tracks, you think of the animal that made it, the rabbit's tracks in the snow, even if you don't see the rabbit. The presence of the rabbit is signified by the sign. Now, there are other types of signs, uh, even within nature, where um, natural things, like smoke, signifies fire. Um, now this is just a feature of nature itself. There's nothing constructed or artificial or the product of art in that sign. It's just a feature of our natural engagement with the world around us. And it's also a feature of what uh, philosophers will call epistemology, or, or the, the way in which we understand philosophically the workings of human cognition and the, and the mind. Even just according to nature, when we encounter natural objects for Aristotle, there's a certain impression made on, on our soul, as it were, through the senses uh, that produces a concept in the mind. There's a sense of signification going on there, too. Uh, but there's other types of signs that are constructed 
Um, and these are signs that Augustine will call conventional signs. So these are signs that living creatures show to each other to convey in as much as possible something felt, something sensed, or something understood. A great example here is language. Right? Uh, and Augustine will tell us that uh, conventional signs of this kind tend to impact either the, the visual sense or the sense of hearing, uh, possibly other senses, but mostly just those two. So you might think of natural signs as uh, generally more tactile or more immediately accessible to all the senses, but conventional signs in this sense are constructed to convey meaning in a certain sense. An example would be a stop sign, for example. Um, when I see the, the red sign, I don't have one here to show you, but I, I don't have to because you know exactly what I mean. It's a red sign that communicates an idea. It says stop on it, and you, you immediately understand what it means. It's not a natural sign, but it's a conventional sign which conveys, by sort of mutual agreement of meaning, uh, a certain understanding and produces a certain effect. I stop. I could also just tell you to stop. <laughs> I could use the word in an auditory way as opposed to you seeing it visually. And in that sense, a, a similar kind of signification is at work. Words communicate meaning, and in that meaning we have a kind of common understanding, at, at least when we share the same language group, that certain sounds indicate certain concepts and certain ideas. Okay, so conventional signs are constructed in a certain sense by rational agents to show meaning, to convey feeling or sense, and to communicate with other rational agents. Um, so bringing all this back to Aquinas, some concepts um, from Augustine that get carried over into Aquinas' thought through Peter Lombard and the earlier scholastic and pre-scholastic tradition are this idea of, of the connection between the incarnation as a kind of me medicine and the use of signs or conventional signs, or at least the possibility of using those things, as a way of conveying the effects of the incarnation. Augustine will cash this out, particularly using the idea of words. And here he likes to contrast the difference between the word, Christ himself, capital W, and words in the plural, the type of speech that we use. And he sees a kind of conformity developing in the life of grace between human speech and the ideas that they represent, the inner word of the mind, and the living word, uh, the eternal word himself. Um, and that the incarnation in its own way represents a kind of speech on the part of God, a speech into the material world, which builds on the existing pattern of creation and elevates it in such a way that a new kind of meaning is signified, uh, particularly in the face of, the, or rather the defacement that original sin represents with regard to nature. So these ideas uh, culminate for Augustine in a particular understanding of sacramentality in which element and word combine to create a sacrament. The scholastic vocabulary of matter and form in the sacraments builds on this basic Augustinian understanding that word and element come together and a sacramentum or a sacrament is created. This is a kind of conventional sign. And so when we see the water washing in baptism, for example, and the words of the priest spoken while the water is washing, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you have word and element coming together. It's a kind of use in the, the mystery of the church's life of conventional signs that are tied directly to the instrumentality of the incarnation and the wisdom of Christ as a medicinal figure, someone who has come into the flesh to bring a certain healing 
to the humanity that he himself embraces. Okay, so all of these ideas, again, through Peter Lombard and um, the scholastic tradition are filtered into the thought world of Aquinas. And we see similar patterns. If we step back for a moment and look at the overall structure of the Summa Theologiae, moving um, from the doctrine of God in the, in the Prima Pars through uh, an account of human anthropology, both the principles that govern it and human acts themselves in the Secunda Pars. Moving into the Tertia Pars, we see a treatment of the incarnation, which moves in three basic parts. The first is the fact of the incarnation itself, what it is, what is the doctrine, how is God made man? Uh, the middle section, if you will, um, has to do with what Christ did, culminating in the passion. The final section, beginning at question 60, which is the question I began with this evening, where Aquinas defines the sacraments as a certain kind of sign, has to do with the effects of the same passion. And so we can see, in a certain sense, the whole of recreated reality and grace stemming from the instrumentality of the incarnation in the mind of Aquinas and centering, at least in its efficacious dimension, that is, the way in which the mystery and uh, the medicine, if you will, the incarnation is going to be applied to the human person, to you and me in the church, the efficacious dimension of the incarnation centering around Christ's passion and then becoming applied to the human person, to you and me, through the use of certain signs. Again, when Aquinas uses this phrase, he means what Peter Lombard says explicitly, that these are the conventional signs that Augustine is speaking about. So it's a combination of word and element. It's a way in which a certain thing, not already present in nature, is being signified. And that's, of course, exactly what the Incarnation is. When we step back and think about the mystery of God's love for us and the mystery of the incarnate Word of God as a source of new life in grace, it's an amplification of our humanity, a restoration of the dignity of the human condition, a cleansing from the effects and stain of sin, and a preparation for future glory. Something new is afoot in the Incarnation. And the language of signs in the sacramental sense are the means by which that medicine, both through contraries and similarities, comes to be applied to us. Okay, so um, moving forward in Aquinas, we can see how um, Aquinas' treatment of each of the individual sacraments, from baptism to the Eucharist, to penance and to extreme unction, all exhibit, in a certain sense, in their own proper sense, a combination of word and element, uh, specific signs that are unique uh, in a certain sense, to, the, to an individual sacramental reality with a specific sacramental effect in mind. All the sacraments are not the same, they're distinct for a reason, and yet nonetheless they have something in common as sacraments. And here this evening at least, uh, I'd like to spend most of my time on the sacraments in general uh, rather than the individual sacraments, mostly for reasons of, of time. <laughs> um, but if we go to Aquinas on the, the relationship between um, the idea of sign and sacramentality, he's going to continue to flesh this idea out as he moves forward in his treatment of the sacraments in general, which runs from questions 60 to 65 in the Tertia Pars, before he starts talking about baptism and all the other individual sacraments. So if we look at the sacraments in general and Aquinas' treatment there, he has a lot more to say about what it means for a sacrament to be a sign. What are sacraments signs of? According to Augustine's basic definition of a conventional sign, 
you could have conventional signs for lots of things. In fact, we, we already have as many of them as we have words in the English language. All of those are conventional signs. What specifically constitutes a sacramental sign? Something more specific has to be said. So Aquinas is going to connect, in a sense, in his treatment here of sacramentality in general. Um, he's going to connect the, the utility or purpose of sacred signs um, to the, the affecting of sanctity in the person. Okay, um, so I want to read you a short passage. This is still in question 60, but it's taken from article 2. So here Aquinas says that signs are given to the human person to whom it is proper to discover the unknown by means of the known. Consequently, a sacrament properly so called is that which is a sign of some sacred thing pertaining to man. So that properly speaking, a sacrament, as considered by us now, is defined as being, uh, quote, the sign of a holy thing so far as it makes men holy. Now here again, he's um, sort of riffing off uh, some quotes from Augustine as well that are communicated or popular among the, uh, the Victorines, Peter Lombard in particular. Um, but so the idea of a sacrament is a sign of a holy thing. But notice here Aquinas is going to have, he's going to emphasize a connection between the sacraments as signs and the sacraments as causes. So it's not just that the sacraments are a sign of a holy thing. Already in nature, there are lots of things. In, in fact, everything, if we push the envelope, is a sign in a certain sense of God whose being is holy. And we might even find lots of things in created reality and even in the history of salvation, if we look back to the Old Testament, that are signs of Christ's holiness. So it's not enough, at least in Aquinas' mind, for sacraments to simply be signs of the presence of a hidden holy reality. That's on the right track. But for Aquinas, there's also something causal indicated, whether or not that causal event is happening in the present when the sacrament takes place, there's an indication of causality. There's an indication for Aquinas here of the efficacy of the incarnation, even when that's only an allegorical gesture from the heart of the old law, from the Mosaic covenant, towards the future coming of Jesus Christ. As you'll say in his response to some of the, of the objections here, again in Article 2 of Question 60, even in the Old Testament, a link between sign and cause can be found in true sacraments. Although many things in the old law signify the holiness of Christ, simply put, certain things, like the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb, for example, signified Christ's sacrifice by which we are made holy. So here, of course, uh, from the perspective of the Old, the old Covenant, uh, the Mosaic Law, the causal uh, reality is weighted fully uh, in the Incarnation itself. It's a future reality that's anticipated in faith and hope. It's a looked forward to. But Aquinas' point here is that the signification of proper sacraments in the old law is tied intrinsically to the efficacy, the causality, if we will, of the, the coming uh, incarnation and passion of Jesus Christ. So sacraments, even under the old law, are different than just signs of holy things. And this might help us in a certain sense to identify more clearly what it is that we mean by a sacrament with a capital S, uh, as opposed to maybe things that are sacramental in character or bear a kind of signate character. 
Uh, there are lots of things, even in our own liturgical celebrations, be it the Mass or other types of liturgies, that are signs, and are signs of holy things. But the real key to, a, to a, the presence of a sacrament with a capital S is that, is that the efficacy of the incarnation, the efficacy of the passion, is in fact being instrumentally communicated by that reality, that combination of element and word. So again, baptism with the water washing. The water is moving, the priest is speaking. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There are lots of other beautiful signs in the baptismal liturgy which are important and not to be dismissed. In fact, they form a fitting context of what Aquinas will call a kind of liturgical solemnity in which the, the sacraments are properly celebrated, a proper context for what is most essential uh, to the sacrament itself. But sacrament, again with a capital S, uh, has some connection in Aquinas' mind to the efficacy of the passion and the instrumental communication thereof. Okay, again, this follows a pattern that we can find, at least in broad strokes, already in Augustine, that gets carried forward into the Victorine tradition and the early scholastics as well. Okay, so what about New Testament sacraments? Um, in the case of New Testament sacraments, obviously they're, um, they take place after the incarnation, so uh, the sort of allegorical implication uh, which is sort of maybe the best you could hope for under the old law uh, when we signify the passion, isn't so much a factor. You're really dealing with something which certainly signifies, um, it signifies the passion, but not just as something in the historical past, as something which has taken place, uh, but brings instrumentally the efficacy of that into the present. So Aquinas has a lot to say about the idea of sacraments as causes here. This was, incidentally, uh, a, long, uh, a long and complicated debate uh, during the scholastic period, which we don't have time to unpack uh, this evening. But it started, in a certain sense, with Peter Lombard, who, who used the, the language of causality, which is a more technical, philosophical word, to describe the efficacy of the incarnation present in sacramental realities. That's a doctrine you can find in the Church Fathers and all over the place in the Christian tradition in the New Testament itself. But um, the idea that, that the word cause would be appropriate. Some ways um, in which it might not be appropriate, right, <laughs> uh, would be a, a strict application without any analogical nuance of Aristotle's notion of efficient causality. Um, so, to put it bluntly, perhaps even crudely, if um, baptism is causing, so to speak, as a sign, uh, the effect of justification doesn't that interfere somehow with God's role in that? Isn't God the one doing the causing? Uh, well, yes, of course he is. <laughs> um, but the answer lies in an idea uh, which Aquinas will develop uh, at great length uh, called instrumental causality, which is different from a normal efficient cause. And here's the, the basic difference, uh, which can help us get at how the sacraments are connected instrumentally or causally to the efficacy of the incarnation. So. A normal efficient cause tends to function by its own power. That is, it has the power within itself um, to affect whatever is being affected. I can kick a soccer ball across the room all day long. I'm not very good at it, but I, I can do it. <laughs> uh, I have a certain potency for that effect. Now, obviously, God's causality is lurking behind my every move. <laughs> if a good Thomas knows that physical premotion and divine causality is, is the context in which created being exists at all. And so we live and move and have our being in God. Um, that being said, there's a certain um, 
there's a certain power which can properly be attributed to an instrument or a, a non-instrumental agent in this sense, right? So me kicking the soccer ball. There's nothing out of the ordinary about that. And I can say without too much complication that I caused it to move. Okay. Um, an instrumental cause functions by the power of the principal agent, right? Um, it functions by the power of the principal agent. And a better example here would be a carpenter swinging an axe. So one way to think about it is the formality involved. What plan is governing or driving the motion of that axe? If I'm building something with an axe, the plan in my mind, the art, if you will, uh, the formality that governs it, the plan of the house, is not contained in the axe at all. In fact, the axe, if left to its own devices, would just sit there. If wielded by someone without that artistic intent, uh, it would simply just sit there again. And so we see, um, in that example at least, a certain um, insight into how an instrumental cause can function. Uh, another thing to remember here is, uh, and this goes for the carpenter's axe as well, is that the effect is contained instrumentally in the motion of the, of the instrumental cause. Um, and here's, here's what I mean by that. So obviously it's not physically contained, like the house isn't inside the axe somehow, right? <laughs> Uh, but it's contained through the application, the instrumental application of power. And here you really have to think about the formality intended by the artist. And every motion of the axe, every swing of the axe, if you will, is directed in a certain sense by the intentionality of the artist himself. And so something of his plan is operative in the movement. That's a way in which we can talk about grace being contained in the sacraments. Um, it's contained because it's communicated for a certain effect. Um, okay, well, all this is to say that the sacraments of the new law cause what they signify. And what they signify is the sanctification or justification of the human person. This calls our attention, I think, um, more clearly, perhaps, to the reality of grace itself. If we've made it this far, <laughs> and we see the new law sacraments as affecting something as instruments, uh, we might start to ask what precisely that is. Now, we probably already have some idea of what that looks like. We could say things like justification. We could say grace. Um, but a properly, uh, or let's say a, a, a well-developed understanding of the sacraments as signs of a certain effect involves um, a certain understanding of grace and justification, which is implicit in all of Aquinas' work. So, uh, a few points about that, uh, just to, to keep us oriented here. Um, so what is grace? Uh, what is it that's being affected? Um, sometimes we can think of grace as discrete material quantities. We speak of receiving graces. Uh, I went to Mass and I received graces in the plural. Uh, you certainly did. <laughs> don't, don't let me dissuade you from believing that. As you certainly did. But it, sometimes um, we tend to think of them as discrete material quantities, uh, like uh, little objects like this. You know, I have so many graces that I've sort of collected, if you will. Um, one of the problems with that is um, when we have a sort of individuated or, or almost a sort of physical understanding of grace as separate substances or objects that we've collected, um, is we haven't developed an intrinsic understanding of the way in which grace is sanctifying the person. A and there we've actually disrupted the whole incarnational pattern of sacramental sanctification, right? Uh, so if grace isn't something that's fundamentally changing me in an intrinsic way, elevating my being, then it's not really grace that we're thinking about. 
Um, okay, so another, uh, another mistake we might make would be um, thinking about grace in a more, let's say, occasionalistic or legalistic fashion, a more nominalistic fashion, we might even say. Um, thinking of grace as just a sort of legal decision. So here, grace as a kind of justification is just a decision that God makes, right? Uh, so God, after he sees our good behavior, decides <laughs> that we're uh, on the right side of the ledger and uh, decides, again, uh, to mark us down as destined for, uh, for heaven as opposed to hell or something like that, uh, made it into the right side of the book. Now, again, that's not completely false. <laughs> uh, certainly, you wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of that book. Um, but the problem here would be um, that a, a purely legalistic understanding of grace, again, leaves out the kind of ontological density in the order of being that's proper to Thomistic anthropology. So Aquinas has an understanding of the human person um, that's composed of act and potency, a real distinction there, and then as a, a subsistent person, uh, an individuated rational nature, is someone that has the capacity to flourish in the moral life, to flourish in virtue, and it, with the help of grace, to be prepared even for beatitude itself. So our understanding of grace has to encompass all of that. And this is, it's related to the way we think about the sacraments as signs. Because again, if we recall the basic pattern that we see in the Tertia Pars that Aquinas inherits, at least in the general sense from Augustine, we move from the incarnation uh, to the life of Christ, to the passion, and then to the application of the effects of that through uh, certain types of instrumental signs. And again, if you go back to Augustine, the whole point of, of the divine physician, the, the wisdom that's governing uh, Christ as a, a, kind of, um, a kind of physician or doctor, is the idea of contraries and similarities. So there's some ways in which the incarnation is contradicting our faults and our vices, our sins. There's other ways in which he's establishing a kind of solidarity with us that builds union between humanity and God. Those are the things that grace, if you will, is supposed to be affecting in us. So here's some other ways we could think about grace, um, drawing on Aquinas. Now, if we skip ahead in the Tertia Pars, um, I know I wasn't going to talk, I said I wasn't going to talk about individual sacraments, but uh, I'll say just a little bit about something Aquinas says in the context of the sacrament of penance. You can find this in question 86, article 2 of the Tertia Pars. So here, um, Aquinas begins by talking about grace as a kind of favor. And he makes a comparison between human grace and divine grace, and draws a number of contrasts as well. So if you think of grace uh, in a human sense, you could be in the good graces of someone else, or not. <laughs> you could fall out of someone else's good graces through offense, through offending the order of justice in some way. Um, if I borrow something from you and don't return it and break it and then don't pay for it, you might be upset. <laughs> um, but the difference uh, between divine grace and um, human grace in this sense has to do with a difference in the order of justice between uh, one man to another and one man to God, according to Aquinas in question 86. So because justice is different, if you will, between God and man, whereas if I'm talking about someone else, another person who I've offended, uh, it's really um, a relationship of equals. But obviously in the case of God, I'm not God's equal, um, and uh, I'm not really able to do anything to pay him back. Uh, it puts the causal burden on God in this case, and this is significant because Aquinas is drawing a, a real connection between divine causality and grace in, in this instance. Um, so 
in the case of human offense, if, uh, if you've done something to me, right, uh, you've, you've broken my tool, uh, you know, you borrowed a wrench from me and then broke it or stole it, didn't return it, and I'm, I'm upset, I could just decide um, to presume that you have the best of intentions and to just sort of let it go, right? Um, I can't actually cause you to change your mind and my act of forgiveness doesn't have that effect, right? So when I, when I forgive you, uh, it's not actually causing a change in you. You might be going your merry way with my tool uh, and not caring, right? <laughs> but I'd forgive you uh, just the same, right? Um, in the case of God, however, when God justifies, when he sets the relationship right in justice, it has a necessary causal effect on the disposition of the will of the person who is justified. And so Aquinas will develop, uh, this is earlier in the Summa, in the Prima Secundae, um, the categories of operative and cooperative grace. Well, so operative grace is really just God moving you, right? Uh, him moving your will to repentance, turning you back to him, right? Um, and then the moral life unfolds uh, as we begin to cooperate with God, as we begin to live in grace and virtue. Um, so that's one way of understanding grace. It's the kind of restoration of a relationship in justice, which, because it's a lopsided relationship, has to be causal on God's part. Um, okay, so that's the first point. The second point here uh, to develop our understanding of grace a little bit more is to go back to the, the uh, Prima Secunde. Uh, so you can find this in question 109 of the Prima Secunde and following. Um, but uh, here, you know, Aquinas has an understanding of um, what, what I would call the ontological density of justification, right? Again, so it's, a, it's an understanding of, of justification which isn't purely legalistic, that God just decides, um, or purely uh, physicalist, uh, as if grace is, is a bunch of stuff that I've gotten, right? I've sort of collected all of the... Um, you know, all the pieces of the puzzle, especially, you know, as many as I was supposed to collect or even the, the one that was really hard to get to, right? Uh, and that's, uh, I've sort of achieved whatever I was supposed to do in the spiritual life. Uh, it doesn't change me, of course, but I've got all the stuff. So in between those two uh, examples, one is, is purely legalistic and one is reified in a way that doesn't actually affect change. If you position that notion of justification as causing a change in the will, you, you have a beginning of an understanding of what it means for God through physical pre-motion and uh, through operative grace to turn the human heart towards himself. That begins for Aquinas an unfolding of a whole process of change within the human person. Um, and Aquinas will even, again, this is in 109 of the Prima Secundae, he'll speak about grace as a kind of um, accident, uh, using Aristotle's language, and hearing in the very essence of the soul. And what he means by that is simply to say that that which is most essential about us, what's most human, uh, what's most proper to us, uh, from which all of our other powers, all of our other abilities, all of our faults as well flow, uh, that, that's the part that's been changed. And what's changed? It's conformity to Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of the pattern of the tertia pars, from incarnation to passion to sacraments, is to affect a conformity to Jesus Christ. It's to make us incarnate, right? uh, to conform us to the living word in a certain sense, to pattern our lives and our hearts, our desires, our very person analogically on the exemplar of the incarnate divine word. Now, if we go back to the sacraments, 
This notion of grace is operative um, in Aquinas's own description of the sacraments as causes. So it's very clear that Aquinas has all of this in mind, I would argue, <laughs> when he introduces the idea of sacramental signs affecting what they signify. And this is in question 62 of the Tertia Pars. And he'll say here um, that the sacraments cause grace. And in that much, he's not saying anything uh, particularly original. Peter Lombard says the same thing. The key that, that makes it different, though, is what Aquinas means by grace. And in this context, he tells us, again, this is question 62. Um, in the, uh, so the, um, Aquinas describes here grace as a participated likeness in the divine nature, uh, a participated likeness in the divine nature. Now, he uses similar language earlier in the Prima Secundae uh, at various places, but um, that's the heart of what the sacraments are intended to affect within us. Sacraments are signs, but they're signs of what? They're signs of a holy thing, not just any holy thing, not even just the holiness of Christ, but the holiness of Christ changing us, right? Uh, so they're a sign of the effect, and the effect is this participation in a likeness of the divine nature. That's the whole purpose of the sacramental economy for St. Thomas Aquinas. And as we return, perhaps, um, to the beginning uh, of our talk this evening, and recall the, the medicinal analogy that Augustine uses and that Aquinas invokes when he speaks about the sacraments as signs, something of that causal intent, that repatterning of the human person according to the grace of the Incarnation is already present in the mind of Aquinas. So for us this evening, as we conclude our time, and it's almost time for our, our question and answer session, um, you know, I think some of the most significant dimensions of, there are many significant dimensions of Aquinas' thought on the sacraments, um, but I think it's important for us to see how integral, how, uh, how well integrated Aquinas' thought is as a whole. Because he proceeds according to the, the nature of reality as it is in and of itself in the Summa Theologiae, his thought, uh, particularly in the Summa, um, exhibits a deep integration. All the pieces flow together. There's no part of the Summa Theologiae that's uh, not related to another part in some ways. And by the time he gets to the Tertia parts, the last part, um, you see all of the other building blocks from his understanding of God, divine exemplarity, creation, who the human person is and what the human person is made for, how beatitude forms a proper end uh, for man, for the rational creature. You see all those pieces coming together and the sacraments, again, to use Augustine's language, is a certain type of conventional sign are intended to affect that incarnational result. Thank you. Excellent, Father Reginald, thank you very much. Um, we have a number of good questions, so <laughs> let's get started right away. Um, so one of our viewers, Edward uh, from Zoom, says that he has studied sacramental theology um, mm -hmm in a little bit of a formal way, and he's discovered that people say St. Thomas changed his mind or had different understandings about sacramental causality at different times. So mm -hmm. could, you, could you make some comment about uh, St. Thomas maybe changing his mind or developing his thought about this? Yes, yes. Um, yes, so, okay, so um, it is true uh, that Aquinas developed from the sentences to the Summa. So in the, in the sentences, so um, for those of you who don't know what the sentences are, uh, that's Aquinas' earliest work 
really, or one of his earliest works. It's basically his doctoral dissertation, right? So to, to receive a doctorate in theology in the 13th century, you needed to comment on Peter Lombard's sentences. It's one of the reasons Peter Lombard was so influential in theology. Uh, half the time, people are, are drawing a lot of, especially a lot of their patristic citations from Lombard's sentences. Um, but again, so it, Lombard introduces the idea of causality um, without implying anything particularly Aristotelian. But during the 13th century, as the works of Aristotle began to be disseminated more broadly in the scholastic West, um, you run into certain problems. Um, that is to say, not all scholastics are um, receiving Aristotle in the same way. Some people don't like him at all. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that that we don't need to get into. But the, um, I think one of the primary objections that keeps coming up is that it's just, it's disruptive to Latin theology, right? That it's, it's not necessary. And then there are ideas in Aristotle that we're just having trouble integrating effectively. Um, you can see examples of this, particularly when we talk about the sacraments as causes. So some not so helpful ways um, to apply the language of causality, right, to, um, uh, to the sacraments would be to say that they're material causes. That was tried, some, uh, some early uh, scholastics tried that. That doesn't really make any sense. Um, <laughs> uh, once you read a little more Aristotle, it's obvious that can't be right. Um, but if you're gonna say efficient cause, there's a problem. And I, I hinted at some of the problem in my talk earlier. You wouldn't wanna say, for instance, that the efficient causality of the sacraments diminishes divine causality in any way. Um, so you had two basic school positions in the 1250s. Uh, that are circulating. Aquinas repeats both of them in the sentences. If you look at Hugh of St. Cher, earlier Dominican, if you look at um, uh, William of Auxerre and, the, and the, then the later Franciscan tradition, uh, the Summa Hollensis, and then eventually Bonaventure, same two positions repeated. And those are either it's occasionalistic or it's dispositive. Um, and to say it's occasionalistic, I touched on this a little bit by implication. That is to say that the sacraments are just occasions that God chooses to interact with causally. So you're sort of just, um, you're just sort of spiking the ball, if you will, right? And God takes care of the, causa the causality. Um, uh, I don't know if that's a great example or not, but uh, you're sort of, um, the sacraments are just an occasion upon which God acts. Now, the contemporary magisterium that is after Trent, uh, th this is really no longer a position that you can hold after Trent. I don't, I don't think, e even the occasionalists themselves got pretty skittish uh, <laughs> after Trent. Um, so, um, but the, it was a, a widely held position in the 13th century through the 15th. Okay, um, so that's one option. Um, and a number of the problems are some of them that I outlined here. The implications for what you think grace is, for instance, um, there's some problems there. Um, but uh, so the other option, the other stock school position would be dispositive causality. So you don't want to say uh, that God as cause, if you will, is being disrupted somehow by this efficient causality of the sacraments. So you say that the sacraments cause a disposition uh, upon which God acts or something like that. Um, people meant a lot of different things by dispositive causality. It turns out uh, sometimes when people repeat a stock school position, they'll then reinterpret it themselves in a, a way which is different from the last guy. Um, you know, so just because they're saying dispositive causality doesn't mean they all mean the same thing. That's, that's the first point. Um, so Aquinas uses this language in the sentences commentary. This is a long answer uh, to what could have been a shorter, um, um, a shorter answer, I think. But, um, so uh, Aquinas uses this language of dispositive causality in the sentences. 
uh, but in the Summa, he's switched effectively, at least by implication, to what he terms perfective causality. And that perfective causality, that's a category he also uses in the sentences, but actually rejects for the case of the sacraments. And um, there are a lot of reasons for the development, but a lot of it has to do with developments in his understanding of grace um, and how you understand grace. One of the main issues, and I'll conclude here just so I, I don't monopolize the whole time with this. Um, I wrote a whole book about this. So I have a lot to say about it. But <laughs> um, the, uh, um, is, it's the issue of creation, right? So is grace created from nothing, right? Um, we know grace is, is created in a sense. Uh, well, so God himself is uncreated grace, but the kind of grace he's giving us as a participation in the similitude of his nature is created because we're created. Um, but is it created from nothing? Um, we might be tempted to say yes, but uh, Aquinas and a lot of people are going to shift on that uh, to a certain extent. Because if you think about it, you're, if you want it to be intrinsic, that is to have an effect on the essence of, of the, the human person who's being graced, uh, you're dealing with a substrate, uh, a substance, a person, a subsistent person who already exists and isn't nothing, right? So you're creating accidentally something, uh, we're not, but God is, right? <laughs> God's creating something accidentally in something that already exists. So to say it's created ex nihilo, right, from nothing, uh, isn't quite right. You're dealing with a new creative interaction with something that's already been created. Okay. Um, so suffice to say that Aquinas adopts, is able to adopt the language of perfective causality in his later thought because he's eliminated some of these obstacles already. Uh, so a lot of areas of his thought have developed and become a lot more integrated. Uh, and that's one of the beauties uh, of the Summa when you're, when you're reading it. Uh, the sentences, sort of the wild west of Thomism, right? You can <laughs> uh, a lot of things, there's a lot of really interesting things in there and it's not read nearly enough, uh, certainly not anymore. But uh, you will find areas of his thought where he probably developed, right? Um, uh, so this would be one of those. So hopefully that, that at least uh, gives some, some light to the question, yeah. <laughs> um. Okay, great. Um, so next up we have uh, Lisa from Zoom. Lisa is asking about uh, the analogy with medicine. Okay. So medicine uh, and, and the doctor, the physician. So mm -hmm. In the hands of a bad or an imprudent doctor, uh, medicine can be poison. Right. So what happens, Lisa wants to know, in the hands of a, a bad priest, an imprudent priest, um, how does that affect the medicine of the sacraments? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, one of the, the beautiful things about the sacraments, uh, at least the way they've been instituted by Christ for our use in the church, is that they function... Um, there's a scholastic distinction between ex opere operato and opere uh, operanti. So the, the point is that they, they function by being used, so to speak. So the fact that the sacrament happened and was used means the effect is communicated. And actually the holiness of the minister uh, doesn't interfere at all. It doesn't make, so a, a really holy priest doesn't make the Eucharist more holy. So there's a sense in which the priest is kind of a physician too. Right? Uh, sometimes priests are called physicians, doctors of souls, or whatever. Uh, but the real physician operative instrumentally in the sacraments is Christ himself. Right? Um, an example of this would be, you know, you could go to a mass where, let's say, the, I don't know, the priest makes some mistakes or through whatever, you know, um, the, the liturgy is, uh, you know, not everything it could have been, or preaches a bad homily, a boring homily or something like that. <laughs> um, 
the, the real presence of the Eucharist is not affected any way uh, by any of that. Also, the grace you receive from your interaction with that um, Eucharistic presence isn't affected. Um, another example would be the confessional, um, as long as the matter and form is there. And there, the matter is your act of con uh, contrition, confession, and satisfaction, the acts you're performing. And the form is the absolution of the priest, right? So uh, that word and element, that Augustinian matter and form analogy, that uh, a lot of it has to do with what you bring, right? Uh, but when the sacrament happens, so to speak, when the absolution of the priest perfects sacramentally your act of repentance, um, you get grace. You get the same grace you would have gotten, even if you get bad advice along with the grace, right? <laughs> so you get, uh, you know, some questionable advice or some weird advice, let's say, um, hypothetically. Uh, yeah. um, it, so the, there's a sense in which priests are, are ministers and doctors as well, but if, to go back to Augustine, they're not the ones who are actually cutting the bandages out to, to match the wound as such. When we talk about the sacramental grace that's affected instrumentally ex opere operato, directly by the use of the sacraments, right? Um, so I think that can give us a lot of comfort. Um, you know, uh, although priests are, are other Christs in a sense, they're, um, they're not actually Christ. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, priests, even good priests have limitations, uh, weaknesses, and blind spots, quite frankly, you know. Um, and then, of course, also you have, uh, well, other types of situations where e even if you had a priest who was in, uh, you know, God forbid, but a priest in, who is in mortal sin or something like that, uh, it wouldn't affect the, the power at work in the sacraments. That doesn't justify his situation. That's another issue. Um, and this goes back to Augustine uh, as well. So Augustine had to deal with um, something called the Donatist controversy, where you had, um, well, let's just say you had a, a lot of disruption in the church, partially called, caused by Roman persecution. And a question came up whether um, someone who was baptized by a priest who had apostatized, right, who had... Um, under persecution, had run away, right, <laughs> uh, or had offered sacrifices to the Roman gods, had behaved badly in time of persecution, let's say, right, um, hadn't handled the pressure well. Um, that, that guy, should you receive sacraments from that guy? Now, Augustine will say, look, if you can, for a lot of reasons, it might be good to find someone better, you know, <laughs> um, but like, uh, technically speaking, uh, when push comes to shove, the sacrament you get from him is the same uh, that you get from a saint, you know. Uh, and again, there, it, it's Christ who is designing in his wisdom the sort of shape of the bandages, um, if you will, uh, or the, the way in which contraries and similarities are working in the, the sacraments properly themselves. Um, okay, well, so hopefully that, that's helpful. <laughs> Good. Yeah, so uh, following uh, on some of the things you just brought up, um, Jonathan from YouTube has a kind of similar question, but on the part of the recipient. So mm -hmm. he asks about how does the ex opere operato um, efficacy of the sacraments work when someone doesn't believe in them? So when the, when the recipient, mm -hmm. uh, for example, when an, if an atheist were to receive the Eucharist, mm -hmm. um, what happens? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, that's a great question. So in, in one sense, the sacraments are reliable in the sense that they're not... Um, they don't depend <laughs> on the holiness of the minister as such. They don't depend on the holiness of the priest who's, who's giving them out. Um, in another sense, however, um, whether or not we actually receive the grace that they can give does depend in large part on, on our disposition. 
So if we're not in a state of grace at all, if we don't have the infused virtues of faith, hope, and love, we're not really going to benefit from the Eucharist. Uh, and in fact, actually, you know, Aquinas, and this is ju not just Aquinas, uh, but uh, we'll say it would be a, sort of a sacrilege in a certain sense, right, for someone who doesn't believe to receive the Eucharist. Or let's say someone who's in a state of mortal sin or is not disposed, right, uh, because there's a sort of contradiction, right, uh, between their dispositions and the, the state of their soul, if you will, or the, the, the state of their life at that time and what they're receiving. So um, there are preconditions for fruitful sacramental reception. And when we talk about ex opere operato, that's, uh, that doesn't preclude uh, the necessary role of disposition. So there are two ways we can think about disposition in the sacrament. One is basic, that is to say, um, to use the more catechetical language that the church is accustomed to, are you in a state of grace or not, you know? <laughs> Uh, if you're not in a state of grace and have lost charity, um, there are sacraments for that too. It's just not the Eucharist, right? Uh, so the sacrament of, of penance, that's what you need, right? <laughs> That'll set that one right. Um, but if you are in a state of grace, um, so if you recall, I made a distinction earlier between operative and cooperative grace. Sacramental grace, um, this is a disputed question, but I'm just, I'm going to go with John of St. Thomas here, who's... Um, a Dominican uh, and a commentator from the 17th century, uh, someone who commented on Aquinas, but that uh, sacramental grace is a kind of modality of sanctifying grace or habitual grace. Uh, all that is to say uh, that those categories of operative and cooperative grace that I was invoking before, we can think about what the sacraments are doing in a sense uh, according to those categories. And um, we, if we have grace already, it's not like we're receiving it for the first time or receiving more of it, like more discreet, like stuff, you know, like I've got a couple of these bottles here, right? If each, this is, you know, I went to communion once and then again, and I've got the graces, right? From the, um, if you think of it more in the language of participation, uh, there you get the language of modality that gets a little complicated, um, but it's a philosophical way of talking about, um, we could say discrete moments of participation in a single reality. So, if the point of grace is participation in divine life, my sacramental, um, as I dive into the mystery of divine love in the Eucharist, right, to participate in that, that's a different moment. Each time I receive communion, each time I celebrate Mass as a priest, is a different moment of grace in which the habitual grace that's already living within me, uh, thanks be to God, it, you know, and, and his good favor <laughs> is strengthened. Um, and cooperating with that in charity is the project of the of the moral life in Christ right to to allow charity itself uh, which is which draws its source from the the grace of union in the incarnation Christ's union um, as man with his divinity um, to to allow charity to take over my whole life so to speak um, charity has the ability to operate other virtues it has its own proper acts as a virtue but it also has the ability to get other virtues to act for its ends, right? So uh, to convince, if you will, or to operate or command the acts of other virtues. So to perform acts of prudence, to perform acts of temperance, to perform acts of meekness and fortitude and all sorts of other things for the sake of Jesus Christ as a means of living out the incarnation. The, the sacraments are meant causally and instrumentally to help to amplify that life within us, right? And to stir that up and to not simply invite in a moral sense, but to cause and to assist and sustain our participation in, in that life of sanctification. So um, that's a long-winded way of saying that um, disposition does matter. And um, 
one way to think about the ex-opera apparato business is just to think of it as a guarantee. Like the, the effect is there. Every time you go to mass, the effect is there, right? <laughs> it's not dependent on whether the priest is holy or not or whether he preaches a good homily. All those things are good and important for different reasons. But the effect is there and it's on offer, right? Um, and the, the degree to which our own uh, anthropology, if you will, uh, is prepared to receive that um, is the measure according to which the infinity of divine love is going to impact us, right? So if you ask for just a little bit of that, you'll get it, you know. <laughs> but why not ask for more? Uh, you'll get that too. Uh, God won't run out. So, okay. <laughs> uh. All right. Well, I think we've got about a minute and a half left for questions. Right. So let's do a little supermarket sweep. Okay. <laughs> what is physical pre-motion? Ah, okay. <laughs> uh, in, in two minutes. Uh, that's a great question. It's something that uh, Dominicans talk about a lot. Um, it's a, it's a way of talking about, so if you go back to the prima, the prima pars, uh, Aquinas will talk about the governance of creation, God's governance of created things. I'm thinking of like question 105 or so in the prima pars. Um, and this is a phrase Aquinas will use in his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics as well, but that God is the cause of causes, right? So if you think of creation as made up of causes, I'm a cause in a sense, right? I mean, I can, I can cause some stuff, you know, I mean, I, you know, not... Not always that impressive, but I can, I can, you know, I've got some things I can cause. Um, but God is the cause of that, <laughs> in a sense. So divine causality is fundamentally different from created causality. Uh, and that follows uh, along the, the sort of contours of what we might call the, the analogy of being. So um, we don't always say the word being in the same way. That is, when I say it about myself, I mean a certain thing. When I say it about a rock, uh, I mean something else. When I say it about God, I mean something completely different. Right? It's not just a bigger version of being, if that makes sense. So because God's being is wholly other, his causality is wholly other. It's just defined on different terms, we might say. Uh, and therefore, it's not competitive with created causes. So for instance, the fact that God's causality is sustaining my causality doesn't mean I don't have free will. Right? Um, it's not the case that God's causality negates that or conflicts with it because he's not a competitive creative cause alongside me. As if I have one oar in the rowboat and he has the other one and we're both sort of struggling to, you ever try to row a boat with someone else? It's, uh, not, it's not recommended, right? Um, you, you'd want to be in charge of it yourself and just go where you want to go, right? Um, that's a bad analogy, right, for understanding divine causality, the inner, the, the inner relationship between divine causality and human freedom. Uh, a better way to think about it is as if divine causality is the reason why we have that freedom to begin with. It's the reason why, it's the ratio uh, that gives meaning and scope and form to the exercise of human freedom. And that's also why you can say something like um, Servius Pincares, uh, Father Servius Pincares, who's a famous Dominican moral theologian, will talk about the difference between freedom for excellence and a kind of freedom which just maintains options, right? Um, and freedom for excellence means that I have freedom. I'm more free when I become more human. I'm more free when I actuate my potential for perfection as a human. Sin and vice and other types of human faults uh, chip away at that. We become less free when we give ourselves to things that are dehumanizing, right? Um, or just become so focused on lesser goods that we're not able to allow the higher parts of our mind to attend to divine and uncreated realities. It's unbecoming to the human person. So the point being, um, physical free motion 
is what allows us, uh, it's, it's a way of talking about divine causality, which avoids confusing God with a created cause, uh, as if he's the other guy on the rowboat trying to get you to go his direction, as opposed to the way you want to go. Right? Um, you know, um, it's a way of avoiding that problem while still naming him as cause. So he doesn't move, right? God doesn't, um, because, he's, uh, because of his supreme perfection, he doesn't have motion as such, uh, but he's the cause of all motion, uh, which isn't just about moving from point A to point B, it's about act and potency. Uh, so motion in this sense, in the more traditional sense, the pre-modern sense, uh, Thomistic sense, isn't just about getting from point A to point B or moving a, a billiard ball on a table. It's about actuation, right? Uh, so God's physical free motion is a way of, of asserting that he's responsible for all a physical efficient causality, all act and potency traces back to him uh, as cause and exemplar and motive um, force, if you will, you know, um, in a non-disruptive way which respects the integrity of created nature, natures and works towards their authentic perfection in freedom and in love. 